Hello and welcome to Melee's Turnwheel, the series that takes a retroactive look at the Fire Emblem series chapter by chapter. I'm your host, I'm in Melee Kirby, and today we're taking it back to chapters 9, 10a, and 11a of Fire Emblem, The Binding Blade. So, a couple things. First of all, uh, sorry if I sound a little off today. I am sick, kind of. I have a cold. Uh, it's getting better, but I might still sound a little stuffy, and that's because I am. But it's no big deal. I just hope it doesn't uh, affect the, the quality of the recording too much. Second of all, I'm going to be honest with you folks. I am really cutting it close to my uh, self-imposed deadline here. I try to get these out over the weekend, whether that's Saturday or Sunday. And I am currently recording this on Sunday morning. Uh, and I have stuff to do today, so I don't know if I'm going to have time to edit all this. So if you're listening to this on Sunday, that's great. Uh, but if you're not, that means that I, I was not able to get this out on time. So, um, sorry about that. Uh, possibly, I don't know. But regardless, the reason I bring this up is because I'm going to cut the small talk this time, and we're just going to get right into it, starting with our question from the previous episode, which was, who is your favorite, uh, miscellaneous, like, one-off chapter villain from Fire Emblem? And I got a couple different responses. Uh... <laughs> Like Soup and I were talking about uh, in the last episode, we got a uh, we got one person who said Mustafa, although they did clarify that they meant that Mustafa was their least favorite, which is fine. I did say I didn't say favorite. I did say most memorable, uh, and a lot of people dislike Mustafa because uh, you know we can talk more about this when we get there. But Mustafa kind of like. He's very overhyped. Uh, if you go into any comment section of uh, Don't Speak Her Name on YouTube, you know, the OST, you'll see a lot of people like, Mustafa's like the most emotional character in the entire series. All this excellent writing put into one guy who shows up for 10 minutes. And I do actually think Mustafa is, is a pretty good one. Um, I just think it's a little bit funny how much the community kind of overhypes him. Uh... And I also think it's very funny that he got into Heroes before, like, many, many characters across the series that I would have loved to see in Heroes sooner. Although I think we're getting pretty close to having all of the characters in the series in Heroes at this point. Yeah, that's probably not true. But I just, I, I can't, I can't, other than from, like, Thracia, I really can't think of very many that aren't in at this point. So, anyway, doesn't matter. Mustafa's a good pick, whether it's for your favorite or for your least favorite. Because I, I can see valid reasons for both. And then on Twitter, at uh, Biozilla said, There are many who come to mind, but among the first has to be Paulus, the has-been colonel from Chapter 14 of Thracia 776. His expressions of guilt and primary responsibility for the death of his men stuck out to me. He is still a dirtbag for his allegiance to the Empire, though. And honestly... Biozilla, I gotta say, that's that's quite, that's quite you know, you really summed it up quite nicely, uh, very eloquently. And I agree that Paulus, you know, his his struggle and his story is very interesting. Uh, and I appreciate that. Now, my favorite is Ryan Cock, uh, because his name is Ryan Cock. And I don't... <laughs> no. Um, honestly, I've been thinking about this since we put out that episode. And two weeks later, I still really don't have a good answer. Um, I mean, on, like, Ryan Cock is probably up there. I... Oh, okay, no, I think I know who it is. This answer might change. This might be a question I come back to at a later point, but off the top of my head right now, I have to say that it's probably that one 
uh, Loptus priest in FE4 chapter 7 who loses his uh, Fenrir, is it Fenrir in that game? His long-range tome. And I just remember chapter, uh, the that episode of the podcast is honestly like one of my favorites in terms of like the content. I think I did a really good job articulating my thoughts on a lot of the elements of that chapter and I remember really having a, f- a fun time with that one boss and talking about him. Unfortunately, it's also one of the worst in terms of like audio quality because I was still figuring out like how my microphone worked and there was like parts where the audio kind of like cut out. There was background noise. It was just a whole mess and I I you know, it's it's unfortunate that that's such a uh, such a good chapter and and one that I feel like I had a lot of good things to say about ended up uh, you know, having that having that happen to it. But say la vie, you know, it is what it is. So for next episode, what I want to know is, so normally I would ask, what is your favorite between A route and B route? But a couple things. First of all, I know basically everybody is going to say A route, so I don't think I'm going to go that direction. And then the other thing too is, you know, if I if, if I did want to ask it, I might ask it next chap- or next episode because that's when we're doing B route. Okay, I think I got it, and it's a bummer to burn this question so early on into the podcast, because I'm sure there are plenty of opportunities later where it'll come up and be and be relevant, but I think this is a good one to ask. So today we're going to be playing Chapter 9, and Chapter 9 is honestly one of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite, uh, Fog of War chapter in the series. I, I think it's... I don't like the fog. I think it would be just objectively better without the fog. But I do think that the map layout is pretty good. There's a lot of choke points. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about it in depth in a minute. But the reason that I bring this up is because what I want to know is, what is your favorite fog of war map in the series? I know it can be kind of like a like a best of a bad lot kind of deal. That's fine. Um, you know, because a lot of the fog of war maps are just terrible. I want to know if there's any that you genuinely really like. Okay, so with that done, we can go ahead and move into our chapters for the episode, starting with Chapter 9, The Misty Isles. After everything that happened in Ostia, Burn has kind of settled down. They're being very quiet. It's a little unsettling, actually. They kind of point out uh, that that burn is kind of just like completely gone radio silent for a while. In the aftermath of Hector's death, Elawood is placed in charge of the Lycian League. He's kind of made the uh, the um, what's the word? There's a, a term for it that that is escaping me, but the, basically the temporary uh, leader of of the Lycian League. Um, you know, for the time being until everything is settled down. And now that the uh, you know the place has had a chance to get organized in the aftermath of Hector's death, they've kind of put together a more formal army, and the one placed in charge of that army is Roy. And this time, the game actually does a pretty good job of justifying this. I mean, he's still fourteen, fifteen, um, but I do think that unlike the situation with Hector, they were pretty valid for picking him here because he really showed off his mettle in the situation with Ostia. You know, he handled the situation with Laos, he, you know, successfully made it to Ostia and 
quelled the rebellion there and saved Lilina. You know, he did all these these things. I guess saving Lilina isn't, you know, like, maybe not necessarily, but, you know, probably for most people. And I think they really just recognized his talent as a leader through those those exploits. And, uh, yeah, I, I have no problems with this. I'm, <laughs> the, the, you know, nitpickiest, like, why is the anime written like this, uh, you know, bullshit complaint? is gone. I've I've revoked it because it's it makes it makes way more sense now than it did in the, the previous couple of chapters. Now, if you recall in the last chapter, or in the last episode at least, Roy called in a favor from Etruria saying, Hey, can you guys please come help us out? Um and they did. And now basically Lycia owes them one. So Etruria is trying to cash that in here by saying, Lycia, you are going to go to the Western Isles uh, which is mostly colonized by Etruria, and uh, I guess there's a bunch of bandits there, and the uh, the people, you know, the Lycia army is going to help restore order to the Western Isles. Um, you know, just as kind of like a like a hey, you know, we scratched your back, now you scratched our kind of ours kind of thing. It only took nine chapters, but we're finally we're finally fighting bandits and Fire Emblem. No, I guess we fought them in chapter one and then in chapter five, but this has been a relatively banditless you know, Fire Emblem games so far, um, you know, relatively speaking, at least. Now, the Western Isles is most prominently known for its mining operation. There are a lot of mines there that export precious minerals. Um, and so that's kind of like what their their main role is. And I do like that the, the game, uh, and this is kind of necessary for the plot that happens here. So it's not like, superfluous uh, world-building information or, any, or anything, but I do appreciate that the game makes a consistent effort to, like, kind of give each nation its own identity, you know, as opposed to this just being, like, oh, you know, it's uh, it's some some islands that Etruria owns. No, they have, like, they have, like, a culture here and, a, and an export, and I, I just think that's interesting, you know, kind of like Ilya with the whole mercenary thing. Uh, the game name drop. I don't remember the context, but the name the game name drops a couple of people here from Etruria. Um, there is Roritz, who is the High Chancellor, um, and Accardo, who is the noble who's been kind of placed in charge of the mining operation in the Western Isles. Uh, and these guys are are going to be important going forward. And the game just kind of lets us know here that I, I think it's kind of like this is their kind of like decision to have Lycia do this. Um, which I think is supposed to, like, raise a couple eyebrows. But, I mean, honestly, nothing here so far has seemed particularly uh, out of whack. Next, we cut to Roy's POV. This whole thing was the opening narration. Um, we cut to Roy's POV, and Roy is here with Cecilia, who we met uh, last chapter. And Cecilia kind of, like, gives the lowdown to Roy. Uh, they talk a little bit um, and explain, you know, there's some bandits here, yada, yada, yada. But then they go into some uh, dialogue and some exposition about Etruria as a whole. And it turns out that the prince of Etruria, whose name they say, but again, I cannot remember for the life of me, um, Myrdin, Prince Myrdin. Uh, he, yes, yeah, so they're talking about Prince Myrdin, how he passed away. And so the king of Etruria, uh, King Mordred, was so overcome with grief uh, that he's kind of, like, stopped being the king, um, and Roritz has kind of uh, taken advantage of that and, and is kind of trying to uh, manipulate Etruria to his own ends, uh, basically. And, and that's important context to know going forward, and it's important context as to what's going on here, because as we said, uh, um, Chancellor Roritz is the reason that Etruria is here in the first place, 
and is, you know, we, we think that that might be just something suspicious about that, but, you know, only time will tell. Then the chapter begins, and it is a Fog of War map. We love these. This is actually the first one in the game so far, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there's there's not too many of them, and the ones in this game, on average, aren't that bad. The only one I can think of that's just, like, genuinely really terrible is, like, one of the Ilya chapters has Fog of War. Oh, and then... um the chap well, there's i think there's two fog of war maps in sakai and one of them is like fine the first one uh but then the other one is is in the mansion i don't like that one either so um i think that one yeah that one's fog of war anyway it doesn't matter this one's okay um you know there's there's some cool side objectives here the goal is to get to the top left of the of the map uh and kill the boss there but there's some cool side objectives there's a couple different ways to go um, there's some villages to get, some some shops, you know, all the good stuff. And the layout is honestly really cool. I, there's a bunch of choke points and bridges and things like that for you to take advantage of. And I do really like that a lot. So so all in all, I actually think this is a pretty good map. And, um, you know, in any other episode, it might even be a contender to win for best map of the episode. Although, you know, this time around, that's not that's definitely not going to happen. But we'll we'll talk about that later. So a couple of turns into the map, we see uh, the boss talking to a couple of his uh, minions. So one of them is Fur, who, if you remember, Fur is a character who we met in Chapter Seven. She was with Noah in uh, in the arena, and he was kind of like helping her out. She is, for whatever reason, joined forces with the bandits and uh, and is actually being manipulated into thinking that Roy and his group are bandits themselves. Um, and it turns out that the the boss, whose name is Scott, he is trying to get her killed so that he can get her sword, the Wodao. I guess the Wodao is a really powerful sword. We can talk more about it when we actually uh, recruit for her because we can recruit for her. She is a recruitable character. And we recruit her by talking to her with Noah uh, because, you know, they were together in Chapter 7, so, so he knows her. Then Fur runs off to talk to another guy by the name of Shin. And Shin is uh, a Sakaian. You can kind of tell, you know, they have a very distinct uh, fashion style. So you can kind of tell just by looking at him. And then in case that wasn't obvious enough, they talk a little bit about his, his history. And he says that he is looking for the granddaughter of one of the chieftains of Sakai. So, you know, this one's not super obvious. But I, I would say that they're, they're doing a pretty good job of implying that in order to recruit Shin, you need to talk to him with Sue. Uh, and if you're like me, I'm using Noah, so that's no problem, but Sue has been on the bench since we got her in Chapter 6. Actually, I think I brought her for Chapter 7 for the Wyverns, but, um, you know, I haven't been using her very much, so uh, bringing her was a little bit tricky, keeping her safe, but at least she has very high mobility, so that's good. Uh, now, the annoying part, the probably the most annoying part of the chapter is that these recruitable characters, you know, it can be kind of hard to tell when you need to, you know, when you need to have your characters nearby to recruit them because they're, you know, there's fog. So you can't really tell when they're, like, right around the corner. So I've had plenty of, uh, of times where uh, Shin comes up and attacks my guys and I don't have Sue close enough because I wasn't, you know, expecting him to show up and then I can't have her too close because then other enemies might come out of the fog and attack her. It's just the whole thing. Uh, thankfully, this game, you know, right in the in, in a couple of previous chapters, we got some good items to deal with this. We got a torch staff, first of all. Um, and then, as in previous games, 
thieves have very good vision in fog of war um or i guess i guess it would just be the previous game so if you bring chad or astor or both uh, astor is actually a very good pick to bring to this chapter because there are a ton of axe users and and uh, obviously astor is very fast very evasive and he has enough uh, strength to use like steel swords effectively and generally he can be a really good combat force to be reckoned with here i guess if you trained chad chad can also fill that role um, but most people are probably going to use astor any sword user here can really get a good a good uh, couple of licks in which is actually uh relevant because i guess you know it, i'm trying to think you know you progress through the map um if you have a promoted Shanna here, that's really good. She can use swords. Um, the fog makes it a little bit tough for her to, um, you know, avoid archers because you can't see them coming. But otherwise, uh, she's really not. She she can be really effective. She can rescue drop people. She can fly over the mountains. She's fantastic to have here with swords so that she doesn't get completely bodied by, um, by the axe users that are everywhere. So I would I would definitely say if you have any interest in using Shanna at all you definitely definitely should promote her before this map whether if you know if you if you like getting your characters to level 20 that's fine you might have to boss abuse a little bit to get there but it, it's it's worth it trust me um or you know like me if you if you know i, I promoted her probably at like level 12 or 13 so whatever works anyway uh once you kind of like you know get your foothold in the map you'll you'll end up recruiting fur um, and Shin, and we'll talk about them both kind of at the same time, I guess, because there's not really a point. You do recruit them a few turns separate from each other usually, but, um, doesn't really matter. So, Fur is a Myrmidon, uh, a la Rutger. Uh, unlike Rutger, her bases are not good. <laughs> um, she is fast, uh, but she's frail, she's weak. She comes with a Wodao, which is not, I mean, it's, it's strong. Um, the Wodao is, is a, uh, a weapon that is, I believe... Do they, did, is that a later thing, a later game thing? In some games, the Wodao or its equivalent, the Shamshir, is only usable by Myrmidons and Swordmasters and then some other, you know, like, I think Lane can usually use them and Erica. Yes, okay, so Myrmidons and Swordmasters only. So it's it's a good sword. You could just give it to Rucker and he'd be better with it. <laughs> he'd have like 80 crit if he's promoted to this point, which he probably will be. So honestly, you know... It's not really worth using fur. I like fur, and I actually really like using her because of all the chapters where she possibly could have joined, this one is, like, custom-made for her to get as many kills as possible. There are a lot of, obviously I've said axe users, but then also at a certain point in the map, a bunch of axe-using reinforcements start showing up uh, from the forts. Some of them have hand axes, some of them have iron axes, so it can be a little bit of a pain to kill them all. But there are a lot of them, and Fur can, I, I think Fur got like five levels just from killing these reinforcements. She didn't even kill all of them. So if you can manage to, to grind off of those reinforcements, then Fur can get pretty strong here um, and get pretty high level. She only ended up getting, she honestly got strength a couple times for me, um, but I still think she's only about average because she got a couple like early on and then she just missed the level up for like six in a row. Um, so yeah, I'm I am using fur this playthrough. Uh, I use her in like most playthroughs. I think I mentioned last time, um, and I and, you know this time's no exception. I do I do kind of like to branch out sometimes, but I think this time is is you know 
I, I, I enjoy using the characters that I like, so I'm just gonna use the characters that I'm that I'm used to. So, anyway, Fur is uh, Fur is here, and she's on the team, and she's a lot of fun. I like her. Uh, you know, obviously we'll talk about her character. Actually, she is gonna be the last character that we're well, one of the last characters that we talk about because she's gonna be in the same SSS episode as Corel, uh, for obvious reasons. You know, they're related to each other. She is, and Corel is the last, the absolute last character to join. So we're not going to see him for a very long time. So unfortunately, Fur is going to kind of hit the, you know, be in the dust for the SSS episodes. But we will get to her eventually. And then next is Shin. Uh, Shin is a nomad, uh, the same as Sue, and he's pretty good, honestly. He's one. He's probably the best bow user in the game. Um, you know, especially on hard mode. He does get hard mode bonuses. I don't think Fur does, which is weird. Or maybe she does, and they're just... No, 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 yeah, okay, no, she does, she does. Um, they're just still really bad, because her bases are terrible. Uh, but Shin actually has decent bases, and his uh, hard mode bases are quite good. So he's he's one of the best user, bow users in the game uh, on hard mode, for sure. And then even on normal mode, his only competition is, like, Klein. But I think you could argue the horse wins out in that one. Um, anyway, uh, Shin, Shin's pretty good. I've never used him personally. I don't really like using the nomads, uh, because I don't really like using bow users in general. I do sometimes, uh, and I have used, I think, Sue in the past, but I don't really plan on using him this playthrough. The other main reason that I don't really use them in general is because I don't like going to Sakai. So, and if I'm just playing casually and I don't, you know, plan on going to both routes like I do for this podcast then I just don't even bother touching the Nomads. I, I train Shanna, sometimes I'll train Tate, um, and then I'll go to Ilya, and that'll be that. So if you are going to use Shin, just beware, because using him too much, will end. you'll end up going to Sakai, and nobody wants that. <laughs> no, some people do prefer Sakai, and I think that's that's fair, but, um, you know, I don't. So I, I tend to, to steer clear of the Nomads as much as possible. All right. Now, with most of the bandits cleared out, it's time to make our choice. If you are familiar with this game, you already know what I'm talking about, but if you aren't, uh, there is a route split that occurs right after this chapter, 10 and 11A versus 10 and 11B. And the way that it's determined is by the house you visit in this chapter. There's a house in the bottom left, that doesn't matter. But there's two houses in the top right. One of them gives you a killer bow, and the other one gives you a restore staff. And both of those items are pretty good. Uh, Killer Bow, I think, is probably better, obviously, especially if you're using a bow user. Um, like me, I'm using I'm using Dorothy this playthrough. But even if you're not, you know, it can be good on Klein, it can be good on Shin. So I would go for the Killer Bow most instances. Uh, but if you want to go B-Route, you do have to pick that Restore Staff, which can be handy as well. You know, there's some there's some statuses that you might want to get rid of at some point down the, down the line. Now, the justification for why you go to each route, depending on the house you visit, is actually pretty good, uh, because each house will tell you about a different area of the islands. Uh, so, if you go to the left turn, the left turn, the left turn, if you go to the left house, you we'll hear about the the uh the mines in the north and how the people there though the workers there are worked to the bone and never given a moment's rest um 
and you know it just it seems like a like a really hellish place to work so i guess you know based on that you decide to go to the northern uh the northern mines and then if you go to the the writer and uh, no the right house you will hear about the resistance in the west and how there's you know they're kind of pushing back uh, against the i mean you don't hear about this explicitly but there's like a resistance effort going on in the west that's really all you hear about and you figure it's probably worth going to check that out. If you don't visit either house, unlikely, uh, but if you don't visit either house, you will go to a route. That's the default route. So the, the ones we're going to talk about today, basically, that's the, the default. Oh, boy, this, this cold is really catching up with me. The default route, and you go there if you don't visit either house. Now, the only thing that I think is kind of silly about this is that there's really no justification for why one house closes its doors to you after the other one, you know, after the other one lets you in. There's no indication that they're going to do this. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the other times that they've done this across the series, like in FE1 and FE11, they usually say, oh, hey, thanks for visiting us. By the way, the village next to us fucking hates us, so you probably won't be able to go visit them anymore. Um, and granted, that doesn't tell you beforehand, so it can still kind of be like a, a cheap, like, fuck you. But at least they explain what's going on there as opposed to this where it's like kind of weird. They just kind of like do it apropos of nothing. I don't know. It's just a bit odd. But either way, you know, you go to the, the left house. You know, I went to the left house this time. I made a safe state. Um, we're going to go back and, and visit the right house next time. But for now, we visit the left house. We learn about the mines in the north. And then uh, we go and kill Scott, uh, who is the boss. He's pretty tough. He's a berserker. He's our not our first promoted boss. We've seen a couple now at this point. Uh, but he's probably, you know, in a vacuum, he's the most dangerous. Obviously, Henning is is crazy, uh, but I would, you know, the, the crit rate on, on Scott is nothing to scoff at. So, you know, it might be worth killing him with fur. She can do a pretty good job of that. Uh, but otherwise, you know, you just get rid of him in some fashion or another. I'm rambling on at this point. You kill Scott, you capture, and then you, uh, you move on to the next map. Um, they talk a little bit about how, you know, Merlinus is like, oh, what's our next move? And Roy's like, well, I heard that there's some some shit going on in the mines up north, so let's go uh, check that out. And then that's how we move in to chapter 10, which is called The Western Resistance. The narration explains that there are three islands uh, in, in three islands that compose the Western Isles. Uh, there's Fibernia, Caldonia, and Dia. Um, and this isn't relevant to anything, but it's nice world building, so I included it anyway. Uh, and, and, you know, they kind of talk, the narration kind of talks about, you know, the islands, you know, what they do and all, all that stuff. Um, the opening narration isn't really interesting this time around <laughs> from what I remember. So uh, we're just going to cut to the, the main uh, events, the POV of the, the enemy. We find out that there is a woman by the name of Lalum being held in the dungeons of an upcoming castle. We don't know her name yet, but her name is Lalum. And she's being held captive by uh, the boss of this area, whose name is Nord. Yeah, Nord. I remember because I made a joke about how this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. This episode is not actually sponsored by NordVPN. I just want to make that clear. Nord has Lalum captured and, and is uh, holding her prisoner. Roy is just passing through the area on his way to the northern mines, which is weird because he's actually, if you, you know, on the map, he's moving from north to south, so I don't know what that's about, but he is, uh, he's moving through the area, and this, this, you know, this castle is under the control of Etruria, this is, this is an Etrurian guy, 
uh, who he's passing by. And so, you know, they're here to work with Etruria. So he's expecting to just, like, you know, ask for safe passage and to not have any problems. Uh, but unfortunately for Roy, what he doesn't know is that uh, apparently Roritz, the Chancellor, has put out a hit on them. He's, he's told the nobles here and the, the, the Etrurian people, uh, hey, if you get the opportunity, kill the Lycian army. Wait, just wipe them out. Um, so Nora decides to take this opportunity to attack, and Roy has no choice but to defend himself. Now, the, ma the map layout this time around is quite simple. It's basically a straight shot down to the bottom, and you have to fight through a gauntlet of enemies to kind of get to the castle. Uh, it's kind of neat, honestly. It's it's simple, but I do think that compared to... Like, like maps like this are fine. Not every map needs to be like an intricate weaving layer of of different roads and, and optional objectives. There are some optional objectives here, just not very many. And honestly, I'm cool with that. I think that they had a, they had an idea here, which is, you know, you're just pushing your way through, you know, an enemy, a, a full head-on clash with the enemy to try to uh, to try to get to this castle. And that's a neat idea. Um, and I think I feel like it's executed well here. This is a, a very like, I'm not gonna pretend like it's a good map. I would say it's it's a very like you know serviceable filler map, but it's not bad. It's not bad by any means, which I think, um, you know, I. I can see why some people might not like it though because it is very simple very straightforward there's really not much to say about it i do think this is our first instance of a generic promoted enemy there is a, a berserker in the uh in the center down here um but you know he's pretty easy to deal with you can have like any evasive sword you i mean you have to be careful because he you can just get unlucky and die that's that's the unfortunate thing uh is that like as astronomically unlikely as it is, it is entirely possible that he hits, like, Rucker with, like, 5% hit and then just crits him and kills him. Uh, unbelievably unlikely, once again, but it is it is possible, which is why I don't really like Berserkers very much, especially as, uh, as generic enemies uh, that can move as opposed to bosses that can't. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. It's not too bad. A few turns into the map, we see a scene between uh, a purple-haired guy and a, a woman villager. And the purple-haired guy, whose name is Geese, he says, I'm taking off. And he says that he wants to go get revenge for his comrades. I guess his crew, uh, who, who, who he's been with for a while, uh, was tricked into going to the mines uh, by, by the people around here, by, by Nord and his, uh, and his, uh, you know, his followers. He said, "Hey, if you go to the if you go to the mines, we'll give you work." Uh, but basically, they were worked to death, and uh, and they they ended up passing away. And so Geese wants revenge, uh, so he takes off. And you can talk to him with Roy and recruit him. He, he comes onto the field as a green unit. If you talk to him with Roy, you recruit him, and uh, he joins you. And Geese is a pirate. Pirate is a very interesting class, uh, just conceptually, because. You don't see a lot of those. We saw in, in FE1, uh, I guess just FE1, I think he was cut from FE3, we have Daros, who is a pirate, uh, and he's one of the first recruitable characters in the series, so I guess it's not that weird. Uh, but, you know, in most Fire Emblem games, pirate is an enemy-only class, so getting one is uh, is pretty cool, and it's nice to see, you know, Geese, Geese is a fun guy. Uh, he, he has an interesting character that we can talk about another time, but just in terms of gameplay, it's worth noting that he's not very good, unfortunately. His bases are a little shaky. 
he does join with a high enough axe rank to use the brave axe which i believe is b uh so that's pretty cool and uh you know he's certainly he's certainly serviceable and usable he promotes to berserker uh which is a uh, a really cool class uh you know with that high crit rate those you know fucking awesome animations uh, i've never really talked about the gba animations but honestly i maybe i'll save that for like uh for like a wrap-up thing but man the gba animations are so fucking good and berserker is one of the best but unfortunately uh he's not he's not that great his growth rates aren't terribly special uh his bases aren't spectacular so he's kind of just uh is just uh just an all right character he's he's not terrible but he's he's not very good either a little bit further into the map, we do get access to another recruitable character. This time, it's a red unit. Nord calls over a man named Gonzalez, uh, and Gonzalez is clearly very, you know, he doesn't seem like the brightest light on the tree. He's he seems kind of like a like a I don't know what the right word is, but it, this is a trope used in in stories for for you know a long time now. Um, kind of a, a slow, dim-witted guy. It's honestly a little bit a little bit offensive, um, but I don't really you know I'm not gonna die on that hill. I don't really care that much. Kind of the slow, dim-witted uh, brute uh, who kind of just like he's so stupid that he kind of just does whatever he's told because he's he's been convinced that whatever person he's working under has his best interest at heart uh you know etc etc so now nord is telling him to go kill the villagers and and you know go ransack a village and gonzalez is like oh i don't know if that's a good idea he, like he kind of like puts up a token fight um and nord says we'll do it anyway and and gonzalez agrees now you recruit gonzalez by talking to him with lilina uh, we talked a little bit about this if you listened to the previous SSS episode, uh, where Lilina talks to Gonzalez and kind of, you know, uh, says like, hey, don't do this, it's wrong, you know, like, you know, you can do the right thing, you can join us and, and fight back, and uh, we'll make sure that you don't have to destroy any villages, and Gonzalez agrees, um, and joins up with you. Now, Gonzalez is a brigand, and this one is, I mean, it's, it's essentially the same thing as pirate, like, conceptually, but technically, this is the first time we've seen a brig, a playable brigand, um, I guess, unless you count, oh, no, that's not true, I forgot Marty, I was gonna say, unless you count Dagdar, but, uh, no, Marty, too, oh, man, I can't believe I forgot Marty, what the fuck, what's wrong with me, I love Marty, okay, never mind, uh, <laughs> Gonzalez is still a pretty cool guy, though, uh, and he, um, he's fun, he, he's fast, and he's strong, and he has a good weapon rank, and, uh, he, we're gonna talk, because we do actually recruit, we recruit Geese and Gonzalez on both routes, um, and the level that Gonzalez joins at is, is different depending on the route you play, and his stats are exactly the same across both, but in, uh, on a route, he has, he's at level three, and then in B route, he's at level, I think, like, 9 or 10. Uh, really close to promotion. Uh, and it's kind of, like, up to your own personal preferences, which you prefer. Uh, on, on A route, you have a little bit of, you know, he has more room to grow. Uh, but realistically, he's not going to get that many extra levels anyway. So it's probably better, you know, he's probably better on B route where you can just promote him basically instantly. And then get that, get that sweet, sweet plus 5 skill. Because the most notorious thing about Gonzalez, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here. I think the cold is kind of like screwing with my, with my head a little bit, making my ADHD act up. But um, the most notorious thing about Gonzalez is that 
he is uh he has 15% skill growth and a very low base skill. His hit rates are going to be terrible, especially with how low hit on axes are already. Um, he's got some really, really bad hit rates. Now, there are ways to patch this up. I like supporting him with Lilina. I do plan on using Gonzalez this playthrough. So I, I do like supporting him with Lilina. She gives him a little bit of extra hit. Um, normally, I just sell all my secret books in any Fire Emblem game. You know, secret books are terrible. They're not really worth, you know, passing up potentially, you know, 4,000 gold. That's a lot of money. Uh, but usually, if I'm using Gonzalez in FE6, I just use my secret books on him. I know I'm passing up money for the boots, but I think it's fine. I like using Gonzalez. I, I will probably just give him my secret. I haven't yet given him any secret books, but I probably will. Um, and then, of course, uh, when he promotes, he gets a plus five uh, skill boost, uh, which is really big. And uh, I think I think every point of skill gives you plus two hit. So that's, that's plus ten hit right there as soon as he promotes, which is really good and is probably the main argument for promoting him so early. Uh, so that he can, you know, he can get those those mad skill gains. Uh, he also promotes to Berserker, and both Gonzalez and Geese promote with a Hero Crest. So, unfortunately, the this is kind of what Soup and I were talking about last time. The promotion item economy is really in shambles in this. Uh, and I think, you know, for Soup, it, it works out well, and I think he enjoys it. Personally, I don't, because right now we have... And this, the Night Crest has the same problems. We have Rucker... Um, Deke, Fur, Gonzalez, and Geese. Oh, and also um, w uh, Wade and Lot. So that's seven Hero Crest users, and we only get two Hero Crests. We get one in Chapter Seven, and then I think we get another one as a as a like a village reward in the next chapter. So, you know, you can't really use too many of these guys. I'm planning on using Fur and Gonzalez. And then if you if you want to use any of those other guys, or if you've already promoted Rucker because he's really good to early promote, then you really only get your choice of one, and that's fine. Like if you're playing this game for like the third or fourth time, then you can plan out all of the promotion items and like who to use and all that stuff. That's not a big deal. But it is I feel just like needlessly limiting, and you do get a lot of characters in this game. So I do I do think that it would have been better if they had like giving you maybe like a master seal every now and again maybe make it like really hard to get maybe maybe so in the next chapter getting ahead of ourselves we get a reward for every like if all of the green npcs survive there's two groups of green npcs if all of one group survive you get one reward if all of the second group survives you get another reward maybe if all of them survive all of them total maybe you get a master seal um or something to that effect and i i, I think that could have been done you know you could scatter them infrequently throughout the game uh to make things just a little bit easier because man i don't know it's just it's just really hard to promote anyone in this game if you want to use like multiple characters you really have to be careful about you know how much uh use you're getting out of these these promotion items but anyway that's that's you know not, i'm probably not going to bring it up again uh i did mention that nightcrest users have the same problem i mentioned this briefly last time but there's uh, Lance, Alan, uh, Boris, Wendy, Barth, uh, Noah, and Trek. That's seven Nightcrest users also, and we only get one for... I, honestly, I still think we only have one. I haven't used it yet, uh, because I don't 
yeah, I haven't promoted Noah yet. So, but still, that's that's crazy. Anyway, uh, once you get Gonzalez, the rest of the map is pretty straightforward. You kill some enemies. There are some reinforcements that come from the forts down south and from a, from a fort out to sea on the west. You know, so you can kill some guys, get some experience, uh, and then you kill NordVPN and you capture the castle and you rescue Lalum. Lalum is a is a very outgoing, energetic young girl um, who is very excited to be rescued. She gives Roy a big hug, um, and there's a you know it's a cute comedy scene. And Lalum basically spills the beans on everything. So so Lalum is a member of the resistance force, and she tells Roy. You know, like, they kind of hash it out a little bit. Roy's like, we're here from Etruria to stop the bandits. And Lalum's like, bruh, Etruria is working with the bandits. Like, Etruria is behind everything. They are, you know, they're organizing these bandits. They're paying them to, to you know, oppress the villagers. They're the ones that are forcing the, the workers to work nonstop in the mines. Like, Etruria is the bad guy here. And Roy's like, goddamn. And I, I, to his credit... Um, Roy believes it immediately. He's like, I trust Cecilia, but I'm willing to believe you. Uh, you know, I'm going to ask Cecilia about this, but like, I'm going to move forward under the impression that Etruria is the one that's, that's, you know, or I get, he's like waiting to learn more, but he, he doesn't really like seem super skeptical of it. So I think that's pretty cool. And yeah, so with that in mind, they decide to move forward, uh, to link up with more of the resistance, uh, and and put a stop to whatever Etruria's got going on here. So that's how the chapter ends. Moving into the next one, we have chapter 11a, which is called The Hero of the West. So the opening narration explains that Roy is writing a letter to Cecilia to kind of explain the situation. Uh, it just kind of shows that he has some faith in her and knows that even if all of Etruria is kind of like conspiring here, she at least can help and uh and he tells her that he plans to like what he plans to do next basically they're going to this village to meet up with the resistance uh we cut to an enemy pov where we find bishop orlo uh he is kind of talking with uh not kind of he's talking with milady who we've met before and Basically, Milady is asking, have you seen Princess Guinevere? She's basically going around uh, the entire continent just looking for Princess Guinevere. And Orlo says, nope, don't know where she is, sorry. And he says, er, and, uh, and she says, okay, bye, and leaves. Um, it's kind of established that Burn and Etruria have a, a bit of a working relationship here, which is, I mean, it's a twist, right? You know, supposedly they're on opposite sides, so it's a little bit odd that Bishop Orlo is, you know, on talking terms with someone from... Uh, from Etruria, but it doesn't really matter anyway because Bishop Orlo was lying to her. He does know exactly where Guinevere is, and they are planning on using her as a bargaining chip. Uh, apparently, Chancellor Roritz knows where she is and uh, is planning to to use that information in some way. It's also revealed here, in case it wasn't you know obvious enough already. Roritz was the one who orchestrated the death of Prince Myrdin, um, an assassination apparently. And he says that, uh, and, and, you know, he gets a report that they're ready to attack the leader of the resistance who's apparently hiding out in one of the nearby houses. We then cut to Roy, who, you know, is just kind of chatting, talking about how much of a piece of shit Orlo seems like. And then the soldiers uh, show up in the town and Roy decides that it's time to attack. Now, I made a note here because I actually uh, was very, uh, what's the word, very blatantly misremembering how Merlinus was in this game. 
at least up to this point, because I, I really thought, like, this is the point where I remember him, like, really starting to get on my nerves, because for some reason, I, I really distinct, distinctly remember him being against fighting Etruria, um, which would, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, and, and it would make sense logically, uh, but it would be another one of those, one of those instances where his pragmatism is kind of put up against Roy's idealism, and of course Roy wanting to do the morally right thing is not going to listen to Merlinus and fight anyway. But Merlinus doesn't put up any kind of fight here. He just kind of goes along with it, and in fact, you know, like defers to Roy, like, "Hey, Roy, should we attack to save the villages?" Um, and yeah, I just think it's cool. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Merlinus, for not giving you enough credit. I I hope that doesn't change i think we're we're about to see elfin um and elfin kind of like replaces merlinus going forward from what i remember so um honestly i i guess merlinus just wasn't as bad as i remember him being but anyway i just wanted to make a quick note of that we then start the chapter and a few things to note right off of the bat uh first of all this is a you know like every other map up to this point it's been a seize um and we need to try to get roy to the throne um but it is far from a straight shot uh in order to get there you either need to get rid of a wall um that is 100 health and and you know take the short way if you could even call it the short way if the you know the wall has 100 health i don't know if i would call that a shortcut uh or you can go through the town and that's kind of where the main draw of this map comes in is that it is littered with side objectives there are a ton of houses to visit and there's shops to visit, there is a, an arena, um, there are optional characters to recruit, and some side objectives for keeping green NPCs alive. It's honestly such a detailed, fleshed-out chapter that has so much going on, and I'll, I'll come out right out and say it, I think this is going to be the best map in the game. Like, this is a, obviously a very, a very strong contender, at least. And I think most people would agree that this is one of, if not the single best map in the game. Uh, it's just so dense with stuff to do. And it's not easy, either. It's, it's hard and challenging, but in a completely fair way, or at least a mostly fair way. There are still same-turn reinforcements, which is always a bummer to me. Um, and I've talked about why in a previous episode. Uh, but honestly, the, the reinforcements aren't that threatening. Um, and once you, you know, kind of get your, your, your handle on the map, really the only way that they're going to kill you is if you leave an injured unit in range of their spawn point, which isn't likely and you're probably going to be fine. It's just a little bit annoying. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So what makes this map so interesting? How does it progress from one stage to the next? Okay, so there are a lot of mid-chapter events here. So let's let's kind of start off at the beginning. Um, there are a bunch of enemies scattered all around, around the map. Most of them aren't very threatening. Uh, you were at the point in the game, especially on normal mode, where we're really starting to outpace the enemies. Um, and, and overall, it's, you know, they're not... Um, they're not really able to keep up with this anymore. Most of our good units can one round a lot of the enemies. Um, some of the brigands are like too bulky to one round, but we still double them pretty reliably. Um, and and it's, it's generally not too hard to kill enemies anymore. So we can move pretty quickly through these guys, which is good uh, because we actually need to move very quickly uh, in, in this map in order to save all of the villages. So you start off and 
you'll notice that you have a new unit among your ranks. She is uh, force deployed, uh, so you don't need to waste the, well, I guess not waste, but you don't need to spend a, de a deployment slot on her uh, in this chapter because she will join you automatically, which gives you plenty of time to really get a handle on how she works. Uh, and that character is Lalum, our dancer. Now, Lalum is exclusive to the A route. We do get a character in B route named Elfin, who fills much the same role. He is technically a bard, um, but they're basically the same unit. They have the same like stat spread. They're both five movement. And their main draw, if you've played uh, any of the other games, you probably know that dancers are able to refresh one of your units, allowing them to act again in the same turn. Now, this is a very, very underrated ability by a lot of the, the uh, less experienced Fire Emblem community. But I think if you have like enough experience to be listening to this podcast, you're probably already familiar with how dancers can be um, and how strong they are, especially, you know, I've talked about dancers in, in you know, previous episodes of the podcast. So you 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 get the idea. They're very, very good um, being able to have characters be able to do multiple thing, things on the same turn can be really, really useful, uh, you know, in, in a mo in a most basic sense. Uh, it's essentially, you know, your best unit can now kill two guys instead of one, but it also has a lot more nuance than that. You know, you can give more experience to a character, like if you want a character to get a bunch of experience, you can now kill two enemies with them instead of just one. Uh, if you need to break a, a wall, now you can get rid of that wall a little bit faster. If you want to visit two houses, you can visit two houses. Um, if a you know, if you end if you end up missing a powerful you know an attack uh, and the enemy counters and hits you and they're gonna kill you next turn, you can use your dancer to uh, to dance that character and get him away. Uh, things like that, uh, and and it's just so versatile. And I think people who don't use dancers or who you know if you don't want to use dancers, obviously that's your own personal preference. But I think if, if for people who think that dancers are bad or for you know that think that they're only as good as their best combat unit are really undervaluing the versatility of of what having your having a character move twice on the same turn can really do so with lalam's help we're able to get through this section of the map a lot faster than we would be otherwise we can have characters like zealot and marcus uh rush forward and kill some guys uh and, and clear a path to the center of the map uh, which is where a lot of the uh, happenings will be, you know, they'll be they'll be going on. So after the first few turns, a few things start happening. Uh, first of all, some enemies show up from the bottom, but they're not just generic reinforcements. They are Etrurian, uh, you know, mercenaries uh, that are, or I guess one group is mercenaries and the other is like the actual Etrurian military. Either way, we have two new characters here. Uh, one of them is named Klein uh, and the other is named Tate. And they kind of spend some time talking about, you know, their siblings. Uh, Tate says that she has a little sister who's also a Pegasus knight like her. Klein mentions that he also has a little sister. Uh, and, you know, they, they kind of bond over that a little bit. Um, and then Tate says, I'm going to go fly around and, uh, and attack them from the north. And Klein says, okay. And then they leave. And one of the guys with him says, like, hey... Uh, didn't Roritz say that the Pegasi were expendable? Shouldn't we kind of like let them charge in head first? And Klein's like, no, absolutely not. You know, they're, they're still our valuable allies. And that's supposed to be your, your hint that he is like a noble guy who, uh, who isn't, you know, um, who isn't just some sleazeball mini boss who's gonna, you know, kill some Pegasus knights for fun. It's also supposed to be your hint that you can recruit him. Now, both of these characters, as they mentioned, have younger sisters, 
Kleins is chlorine. Uh, you wouldn't actually know this explicitly unless you read the chlorine supports with Deke. Um, or, well, maybe maybe there's more that ha that she mentions Klein in, but I, I don't know. Uh, she also... Oh, does she mention it in the story, too? She mentions, she mentions her brother in the story. I know that. So maybe you do know that she has a brother, actually. Either way, it's pretty easy to put together. I mean, they both look pretty similar. Um, they're both blonde, which, of course, in, in, anime, uh, in anime land... Or I guess just like in a lot of stories, honestly, uh, usually two characters having the same hair <laughs> means that they're they're related, especially if they talk explicitly about having a younger sibling or whatever. So you can recruit him with Clarine. Um, in playthroughs where I use Clarine, I try to recruit her or I try to recruit him with her because she can move a lot faster and is generally, you know, a little bit better um, at getting to him quickly. Now, of course, Clarine being a healer means that she's not going to be able to, like, deal with the enemies and, of course, doesn't want to be put in range of too many enemies on enemy phase. Uh, but, you know, if you're if you're protecting her with Marcus and Zealot, that's not really a problem. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that it is more than possible to get Roy to Klein, like, where he spawns, uh with enough time. I mean, you might be a little bit behind. You might have to, you know, rescue drop Roy a couple times or whatever. Um, but it's, it's really not too difficult. You can get him by without too much of, a, of an issue. Uh, and Roy can also recruit clients. So that's not really a concern. Now, a couple turns, actually, no. Okay. So let, let me, let me take it one thing at a time. Uh, after Klein shows up, uh, Tate is, is off the map for a while. She's going to be coming back later, but uh, for now it's just Klein. You recruit him and all of his units turn green. And if you protect all of them, they're immediately going to start trying to run away. Um, and they can be killed by the enemies. But if you manage to protect all of them and let them all escape, then at the end of the chapter, you will get an Orion's Bolt, which is handy uh, because we didn't get it's the only uh, promotion item that we did not get in chapter, you know, uh, seven, eight, that range. Um, now, of course, an Orion's Bolt is only useful if you're actually planning on using a bow unit. Uh, which there, as I've established, there aren't many good ones. There's like Shin, and even then, you might not want to use him because of Sakai. So, um, you know, for the for most people, it's going to be four thousand free gold. But hey, that's that's honestly not that bad. Um, and of course, if you do, you know, want to use one of the weaker archers, like in this case, I'm using Dorothy. Um, you know, it's it's handy to have for sure. Also, around this time, in fact, I think at the exact same time, we see that. Uh, Orlo is recruiting the bandits to attack the villages for him, um, and that you have another couple turns before they show up, but this is why you really need to book it, because the bandits show up in some caves over on the east side of the map, and it's only two turns, it's like the turn they show up, they can move, um, and so it's only one turn after that, maybe two turns, that they can, uh, before they can reach a village, so you really need to get there quickly with some of your stronger units like Marcus and Zealot, uh, to take care of them and make sure that they aren't able to get rid of the villages. Because in addition to obviously, you know, the village rewards are pretty good for the most part, especially uh, some of the ones that they're going to go after uh, early. You also get a, uh, I think it's a, what is it, an angelic robe or something like that uh, for keeping all of the villages safe uh, for the entire map which is tricky, but certainly not impossible. And that's that's kind of what I like about this map. It's like, it's it's a fair, honest challenge. Uh, and especially on hard mode, you know, you're, you're gonna really be struggling uh, to keep these villages safe. And it can be frustrating when one of them uh, ends up getting destroyed and you have to reset, or, you know, if, if one of your characters dies because you overextended because you're trying to go fast, like that stuff can happen. Uh, but it never really feels cheap. Um, I did get 
hit by a lot of low percent hits in this uh, in this uh, map, which you know obvious confirmation bias. Thirty percent chance to get hit is not zero percent chance to get hit, even in true hit system. Um, I forgot to talk about true hit. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but anyway, my point is, it can feel frustrating sometimes, but I really don't think that this is an unfair challenge at all. I, I think it is a genuinely refreshing change of pace to actually be pushed to complete a map fast. And God knows we haven't had to do that since when? Like, when was the last time we were actually pushed to beat a map relatively quickly? It's certainly not in this game. Maybe, like, I guess, like, Chapter 19 of Thracia? Um, maybe? I don't know. Something around there. Uh, maybe, maybe Endgame, I guess, could also be considered... I don't know. It's uh, It's been a while for sure. And it's very few maps in the series that really push you in the same way that this one does. So I think it's a, it's a genuinely fantastic map from start to finish. Um, now, we are not quite done yet. Um, I'll be sure to talk about True Hit at the end <laughs> or else I'm going to forget again. Uh, but we do need to talk about Tate. Uh, a few turns after Klein shows up, Tate is going to show up. Now, you might think, oh, hey, I... Uh, I know that her sister is Shanna, uh, either because you played the game before or, you know, it's pretty obvious to put two and two together on this one. You're probably going to figure out that Tate is uh, is Shanna's older sister. So you might think, oh, hey, I can talk to Shanna with Tate uh, or the other way around and recruit her, right? Well, if you tried doing that, you're going to be sorely disappointed because she actually does not listen to uh shanna at all you need to recruit her by talking to her with klein which is pretty frustrating because she spawns at like the far end of the map um like klein is like way far like at the literal opposite corner of the map uh to talk to to tate so you're gonna need to rescue drop him a little bit uh or maybe you know have him have him run quickly make sure you bait the pegasi if, if too many of your units are on the right then the Pegasi are going to be baited to go right. And if you're like me, you sent Klein all the way back to the beginning, uh, and then they started going right, and you had to send them all the way back. Um, it's pretty frustrating. Uh, I don't actually remember what talking to her with Shanna does, if anything. Um, they definitely have a conversation. Uh, but I don't rem I, I think she stays red, and I think all of her enemies, or all of her, you know, units with her will still just attack you anyway um for the longest time i thought she turned green but uh let me just double check real quick okay so i just looked into it and it's it actually seems like there's a lot more axes of this than i originally remembered so based on some vid uh, video that i looked at and some of the um and basically what the wiki is telling me there are a couple of different outcomes for this so, first of all, like I mentioned, if you talk to her with Klein, she just turns blue right away. She joins up with you immediately. Now, if you haven't yet recruited uh, Klein, you can talk to her with Shanna, and talking to her will do nothing. She will stay red. Um, they, they do have a conversation together, but, you know, they, they it doesn't do anything. Then, if you recruit Klein, you can talk to her again with Shanna. And then it seems like she turns blue, I think. Or, alternatively, there's a third option, uh, which is that you can, if you have already recruited Klein before Shanna talks to Tate the first time, 
then you go to talk to her, she will turn into a green unit, and then if Klein talks to her, she'll turn blue. So you have three different options here for recruiting her, um, and it is a little weird. Um, she might. It also could be that when you, uh, if you talk to Shanna before recruiting Klein, and then after recruiting Klein, she might just turn green as well. I'm not sure, but. Oh, and it's also worth mentioning that if Klein is dead, you can't even talk to her at all. Not even like the the same like, you know, she stays she stays red conversation with Shanna. You cannot talk to her at all. So that's a lot of different ways to recruit Tate. And I also didn't talk about Klein, so I guess we'll we'll talk about both of them. Um, but first, I just want to mention that Tate gets a bit of a bad rap for this. I always used to hate Tate because I always thought it was shitty that she is you know she is willing to fight and kill her own sister. But, you know, as soon as Klein says, oh, no, don't worry about it, she's like, okay. Um, and I think it's because there is, like, there's definitely a hint of a romance between the two. Like, or at least uh, Tate has feelings for Klein, maybe not necessarily the other way around. Uh, so I always kind of just like, oh, you know, Tate has a crush on Klein and, and is willing to put that over, her, you know, her own sister. Um, but thinking back on it and, and kind of, like, reading the dialogue more... I do think it's, you know, you can cut Tate some slack because it's been established numerous times that Ilian mercenaries are very, very loyal to their employers. So, you know, Tate signed up for this and Shanna signed up for this. They both knew uh, what it what it came down to. And if, if Tate ended up on the opposite side as Shanna, oh, well, you got to do what you got to do, you know, uh, and and that's kind of just what being uh, an employee and that's what being an alien mercenary means and you could see that like the opposite thing um in in you know in reverse for uh for zealot and co you know realistically shouldn't like ants be able to be like hey you know your ostian mercenaries come work for us but no they're loyal to hector and hector put his trust in roy so you know that's that's kind of how that goes that's the chain of command there you know what i mean um anyway i do think it's a little bit silly uh but I don't think it makes Tate into a horrible character or anything. I don't really like Tate as a character from what I remember, but that's not the reason why. Okay, so now we have both Klein and Tate. Uh, let's talk about them in gameplay. So Klein is a, a pre-promoted sniper, uh, which is nice. He has good stats, especially on hard mode. He gets hard mode bonuses, and he's pretty good um, for, for a sniper. Player phase focus game, as I mentioned a couple times. So having an actually good bow unit is pretty nice. Uh, Shin obviously is better, but uh, Klein does not come with the baggage of, of potentially risking you going to Sakai. So if I have to pick a bow unit to use, uh, which I mean, I don't, I usually just don't use any of them, uh, but usually my first go-to bow unit in any given playthrough will be Klein. He's, he's really solid. Uh, I think his growth rates are okay. Let me just double check. Um, but you know, he's, he's fun. He's cool. I like his character. He's just a nice guy, you know? yeah his, his growths are fine you know they're not like fantastic or anything uh but they're certainly not uh mediocre uh so yeah i, I like klein he's uh he's all right you know being a being a sniper is not necessarily the best for him but he he gets by just fine do his stats change between a and b route i'm actually not sure so yeah he gets pretty decent hard mode the hard mode bonuses are not set in stone they are random by the way for what it's worth um, but they're always going to be higher than his uh, his normal mode bases. Uh, it seems like the variance is a little smaller on on uh, B route. Uh, so the minimums are still the same, but the maximums can be a little bit higher 
on a route. Uh, it, it is the impression that I get. And then Tate comes around, and Tate is bad. So she is a Pegasus Knight, and that automatically makes her, like, serviceable. Being able to rescue drop is really nice. All the advantages that Flyer Utility has, you know, are really nice. Um, and, of course, if you lost your Shanna at some point, she can be a decent replacement. You know, she, she can get two levels uh, and promote immediately and just be, like, a good sword bot for the rest of the Western Isles. But she's just so bad at base. Her bases are terrible, especially on normal mode. And on hard mode, they are significantly better, uh, but not really enough to make a huge difference. She doesn't even come with... Like, she has... D rank lances. She can't even use an axe reaver, which is kind of like what she would need to be useful in in the Western Isles, considering how many axe users there are. But she doesn't get that, so she can't really do that much. If you really set up kills for her, then she can maybe get by long enough to get two levels and promote. But then at that point, you just kind of have a worse Shanna. So. You know, obviously, your mileage may vary. You might have a very good Tate. Uh, or if you just like using Pegasus Knights. I love Pegasus Knights. They're, like, my favorite class in the series. Uh, you know, or, like, up there, at least. Uh, so I really, really like using them. And I've used Tate in, in playthroughs in the past. But usually, I kind of steer away from the, from her because her bases are just not doing it for me. I don't know. It's uh, it's it's hard to make her work sometimes. Uh, but, of course, you know, if you have a free deployment slot... Uh, you can uh, use her, and she can rescue drop people. Oh, and uh, obviously, if Shanna dies, then using Tate still gives you an opportunity to go to Ilya, um, or it makes it easier for you to go to Ilya, at least. So uh, that's pretty good. Okay, now, if you're like me, when you got to this point in the map, you were like, oh, you know, the map's kind of winding down, but you do still get reinforcements, and uh, and there's quite a few of them, too. Oh, uh, I forgot to mention, Tate's Pegasus Knights turn green when you recruit her, and they actually don't try to escape immediately, or they don't make a beeline for it, at least. Uh, they actually stay and try to fight against uh, Orlo and some of the other enemies, and it, it's very easy for them to die as a result. Um... But if you can manage to keep them all alive, you get an Elysian Whip, which can, can be good uh, if you're going to use Tate. Or, of course, you know, later on we get uh, Melody, who's quite good, especially on hard mode. Uh, so, you know, whatever whatever you like. Uh, I, unfortunately, did not manage to uh, get my hands on the Elysian Whip, but that's fine. I don't th I don't, I don't think I'm going to use Melody this, this playthrough. Um, actually, no, I was planning on using Melody this playthrough. Uh, so I will need it at some point, but it's fine. I, you know, I can get, I can always buy another one or something at some point. I, I'm not sure. I'll figure it out. Um, either way though, even if you're not planning on using a, a flyer, another flyer, uh, it's still gold. So that's pretty nice. Now, just as you think things are starting to wind down, as I mentioned, we do get some more reinforcements. Bandits will keep spawning from the caves to the east, uh, but you can cover those up. What's a little bit harder to cover up is the uh, the entire group of enemies that spawns near one of the houses on the east side of the map, uh, basically saying, you know, come out with your hands up, we have you surrounded, and out emerges someone by the name of Echidna. Echidna is the titular hero of the West. She is the leader of the resistance forces on the Western Isles, uh, and she basically says, you know, catch me if you can, and she starts fighting these guys. She is a green unit, and you talk to, uh, you recruit her by talking to her with Lalum. I don't think you can recruit her with Roy, uh, but I might be wrong about that. But I know for a fact that Lalum can can make her blue. And once you recruit her, you get your hands on uh, one of the 
last female heroes in the entire series. Uh, I mentioned in in you know previous episodes that you got uh, for female heroes in the series, you get Radney uh, in FE4, and she's only a substitute. You get Matcha from FE5, and then you get Echidna, who who is this character we're about to talk about. And then after that, you don't get any female heroes in the entire series until the 3DS games, where you can you can choose. You know there are female mercenaries, and then you can choose to make them into heroes if you if you want to. Um, but other than that, you know she she's the only one we're gonna see for a very very long time. And honestly, what a note to end on, because she is pretty kick-ass. I mean, first of all, she just looks fucking awesome, um, but her stats are also quite good. You know, she has really good bases, really good weapon ranks, B-rank axes, which lets you use the Brave Axe that Geese joined with just last chapter, um, and she is, she's just generally fantastic. Her growths are bad, so don't expect her to hold out too, long in the lo- too well in the long term, uh, but... You know, if, if you can get use out of her at base, you know, she's going to be fantastic for the next few chapters where you get her. Uh, unfortunately, she does not get hard mobile. I mean, why would she? She doesn't join as an enemy. Um, but she she doesn't benefit from any of the same things that Tate and Klein do. Uh, but obviously, her class is much, much, much better. Being able to use swords for the accuracy. Uh, and then and then if she can afford to take the hit in accuracy, she can use hand axes. Um, or if she needs a little bit of extra attack power, you know, she can use like the brave axe. Like these, these things are really, really nice for her to have. Um, is going to be one of our better units for quite some time. I don't plan on using her in the long term. Wait, actually, did I? No, I don't plan on using her in the long term. But she is, uh, she's pretty good, and I definitely plan on keeping her on the team uh, as a filler unit until we get more characters that I want to use. Once you clear out all the enemies attacking Echidna, it's really just a matter of getting to Orlo and killing him. He's actually pretty tough to kill. Uh, he has 1-2 range because he's a, he's a bishop. Um, he talks a little bit, like, I didn't go into detail about this, but at some point someone was like, you know, uh, Bishop Orlo, if you do this, like, you're going to become, like, public enemy number one. Uh, please don't do this. Uh, and, and he's like, if they question me, then they're questioning God, uh, so no one will dare speak up to me, which... Um, I mean, it's certainly on the nose. Uh, I'm not even going to pretend that it's anywhere close to subtle, but I do think it's a nice representation of how people in authority uh, abuse their powers, and I mean, frankly, how people in positions of religious power uh, abuse their authority. Um, you know, all the, all memes about the Catholic Church aside, it is a very it was and still is a very common issue. Uh, so I definitely think that this is something that uh, you know. Is, is relevant to our current world. Oh, and I should I should mention that uh, Echidna, just on the subject of Echidna again, Echidna is exclusive to the A route. Uh, she's much better, I would say, than her B route equivalent, uh, but also, you know, it doesn't really matter. You probably, I, I guess some people might pick the route that they go on based on the characters that they get, but usually I don't. If I just feel like playing B route, then I'll play B route, and if I feel like playing A route, then I'll play A route. You know, it's it really doesn't make a difference. Where was I? Yes. Okay. So Orlo is tough to kill. He's a bishop. Uh, he has one two range. His I think he has a divine tome. That's really powerful, and it can be difficult to hit him because his speed is decent. He doesn't get doubled by most of your enemies. I think I actually ended up killing him with Echidna because Echidna can can do deal with him pretty well at base. Um, I haven't looked at my script in a while, so let me just make sure I'm not forgetting anything. Okay, yes. So there is one. I did skip a couple things, but most of them aren't that important. Uh, one of them was that Klein. It, it, when Klein shows up, he 
seems a bit skeptical of what's going on. Um, and I do appreciate that. Like, it shows that he's a little bit sharper than some of the other Aturian uh, people that are that uh, he's fighting with. He, he I don't remember exactly what he says, but he makes some kind of, like, deduction of, like, it doesn't, oh, yeah, that's, that's what it was. Like, I guess they heard from Roritz that Roy and the Lycian army are fighting alongside the bandits. And Klein's like, they just got here. How did they already make a connection with the bandits? Uh, so, you know, he's he's clearly thinking about these things, and I think it, it primes him for Roy showing up and saying, hey, uh, you know, Etruria is is going against us and uh, and helping the bandits. We need you to help us stop them, and Klein agrees. Um, so that's a little bit of characterization for Klein there. Uh, but the more important thing, I guess more important is relative, but a couple of turns into the map, after Milady fails to find Guinevere, she goes to talk to another wyvern rider by the name of Gale. Gale was originally supposed to be one of the three wyvern generals, uh, but Narshin took his place because Narshin revealed that Gale is not native to Burn. Uh, he was not born in Burn, and therefore, I guess that means he can't be a wyvern general. Um, now, Gale does not seem to have any. Uh, hard feelings about this and Minerva just comments on how admirable that is because he's still you know willing to do what it takes he says he's willing to ask Narshin for help and Milady is like that's a little bit weird and he's like why you know he's my commanding officer um and he doesn't seem to hold a grudge against Narshin for you know kind of the underhanded tactics and in, in getting into his position of power so I just wanted to make sure I commented on those two things because I do think that they're important to bring up both for Klein's character and to establish, uh, you know, Gale as a recurring character. He's going to show up a couple more times throughout the game um, and he's going to be important to like Milady's character arc. So worth mentioning him here. So yes, that's pretty much it for this map. Once you kill Orlo, you can capture the throne and we go into the ending cutscene. Now, Roy at this point meets someone by the name of Elfin. Uh, Elfin got mentioned earlier in... Lalum and Echidna's conversation, and I was going to bring that up, but then I finished the rest of the map and saw that he just shows up here anyway, so I didn't want to bother. Uh, I did mention that Elfin is Lalum's equivalent in B-Route, uh, and even though he doesn't join you uh, as a unit on this route, he is still a presence in the story, uh, and he basically tells Roy, you know, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a member of the Resistance, and gives Roy some information uh, that he's kind of like, now that you know Etruria is evil, Etruria might attack Lycia, and in that case, shouldn't you be on the mainland to protect Lycia? And Merlina says, that's a great idea, Roy, let's get the hell out of here and get back to Lycia as soon as possible, uh, but Roy says no, because he has faith in his dad and in the other people on the mainland to protect Lycia, uh, whereas the people of the Western Isles only have Roy and the Resistance to depend on. And so he's going to stay here and do what he can here before going back. And Elfin kind of reveals that that was a little bit of a test. Um, he says, like, I didn't lie to you per se, but I presented the information in a particularly inflammatory way. Um, and I, I just wanted to see how you would react. Um, and apparently he passed the test. Uh, so and, and Roy isn't too happy about it, but goes along with it anyway. And so he and Elfin agree to march onward to the capital of the Western Isles. Uh, to fight Etruria and basically free the people there from their tyranny once and for all. And that's the end of the chapter. So overall, really great one. Sorry that I was a little bit scattershot. I, uh, I 
I'm already pushing the deadline here, and I don't want to have to re-record any of this stuff, but I did miss a couple things that I think were important. So hopefully that wasn't too difficult to follow. Um, maybe go back and re-listen to it if you're having a little bit of trouble like understanding what the fuck just happened. Uh, but I think I think I did an all right job. And in terms of gameplay, uh, obviously, like I said, this is one of the best maps in the game, if not the absolute best, which is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, because I mentioned that Chapter 9 was quite good, and in a lot of other episodes, honestly, it would have taken, like, if I had done 8, 8x, and 9, for instance, Chapter 9 would have been the winner, which is funny, because I just hate Fog of War maps, and I just, I, I think it would have been novel to see a... Fog of War map win for best map of that of that episode, um, but unfortunately it got lumped in with Chapter 11A. So any any hope that Chapter 9 had of of winning this episode uh, is just out the window. Um, and of course Chapter 11A is uh, is going to be our winner for this time. And comparing it to Chapter 7, which is our previous reigning champ, I would say that Chapter 11A is definitely the better one here. I do like Chapter 7, uh, but Chapter 11A is just like such a cool. Uh, bombastic rush from beginning to end and it's just a blast the entire way through there's so many side objectives so many cool things to do and and characters to recruit a lot of stuff going on it's it's a it's a lot of fun um and i i do actually i'm a pretty big fan of uh the next chapter we're going to be playing uh which is kind of the equivalent to this one chapter 10b uh in in b route the first chapter, chapter 10, is where most of the villages are, and it's where we get a lot of the same, you know, items from, from villages and things like that. Uh, it's where Klein and Tate show up in, in B-Route. But anyway, chapter 11A, winner for the map gauntlet. Moving on to news. Obviously, elephant in the room. This is the first episode since the release of Fire Emblem Engage, and I hope everyone's been playing it and having a good time with it. I know that I've certainly been playing it, I tweeted out my thoughts about it, you know, uh, at the time I'm recording this, I want to say like four or five days ago, uh, something like that, earlier in the week, um, and I definitely had a time with it. Uh, I don't think it's a bad game, and especially after I finished it, I've kind of been like thinking more about it and letting it sit with me, and I do honestly think it's it's a pretty fun game. I, I've gone on record multiple times saying that even my... okay. My most Fire Emblem games I find fun. Even even you know games close to the bottom of my list like Thracia, Revelation, Birthright. I find all these games to be fun for in in to a certain extent. The only exception being Gaiden and Fe1. I don't find those games fun at all because of the NES jank. But every other game just you know I, I just enjoy the core gameplay loop a lot. And Engage is no exception. So when I say that I didn't like Engage, I mean that in the context of Fire Emblem, right? I, I love this series, and I, uh, some of these games are among my favorites of all time, and Engage just isn't one of them. And that's okay. You know, it, not every game has to appeal to me. Um, I do plan, I've, I know I've said this a couple times, I do plan on doing a full bonus episode on my thoughts in Engage uh, you know, for, for 30, 45 minutes, just talking about, uh, the various things I liked and didn't like about it. Uh, and that I don't have any estimate for when that's going to be out. I don't even know if I'm going to get this episode out on time. I'm currently, uh, three and a half hours away from, uh, from, uh, the end of my, <laughs> from, from the end of, of Sunday, uh, my time. Uh, so who knows? Uh, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoy playing Engage. I'm not going to bother with any other news this time around because, 
you know, it's all going to be engaged stuff, like the stuff about the DLC, stuff about the pre-order. I guess there's, like, some weird stuff going on with the pre-order bonuses. I guess some people aren't getting all their pins. Some people are getting duplicates. I saw one uh, where someone got two Corin pins instead of the Makaya one, and I was like, oh, no, that poor person. Because Corin, Corin, of all the characters to get two of, you know, two Erika's, two Leafs, like, fine, whatever. But two Corins? Come on. Uh, that sucks, but, you know, it is what it is. Anyway, uh, the other thing, uh, I've, I've beaten a couple games. Uh, I don't think, yeah, no, I haven't beaten any other than Engage since the, the last episode, but, there, except for one, I did beat one, and that was, I finally beat Fire Emblem 1, Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light for uh, the Switch. You know, I, I talked about that in the very first episode. It was it was in the news segment of the first episode of Melee's Turnwheel, I talked about how I bought um, Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light on the Switch for $6 or whatever it was, and I was playing it three whole years ago almost, and uh, it took me this long to beat it. I, I was like, you know, I wasn't having a good time. I was plugging away at it, you know, little by little, and eventually I was on, I think I was on chapter 20-ish, um, and, and the other day I just decided to sit down and bang out the last few chapters. Uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the end of that game is like a huge warp skip fest. Uh, so it really wasn't that difficult and, uh, yeah, I beat it. So I can officially say that I've played, uh, 16 out of 17 Fire Emblem games. The only one that I'm still missing at this point is Fire Emblem 3, Mystery of the Emblem. Uh, and so at some point, I plan to hop on that as well. I just don't know exactly when, but, you know, I'll be sure to let you guys know when I do that. I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be, you know, I'm sure it'll be a bit more fun. I, I kind of wanted to get FE1 out of the way first so that I could play, um, you know, kind of the mediocre, you know, version of that game uh, before getting into it with Fire Emblem 3 as well. There are, I'm not going to talk about any of them because this this episode is already going pretty long, but there are a couple of interesting differences between the original game and Shadow Dragon. Like, for instance, I, I'll talk about like one or two of them. For instance, uh, Camus in Shadow Dragon FE11 is not the boss. Uh, instead, he is a, a kind of like a, a guy who, uh, he's like a mini boss, basically. The boss of that map is, I think, Lorenz or, or some generic guy. Um, but basically... Camus is there it's kind of to make the map more difficult because he'll actually like attack you instead of just sitting there on the throne uh but in, in fe1 he he's there on the throne he's the final boss of the map uh Garnef, uh first of all the geosphere trick from shadow dragon does not work on him because all Garnefs take damage from geosphere in uh in fe1 but also all of the Garnefs are together uh, so it really doesn't affect how you play the map at all you can just kind of like rush the center uh, or like the top i guess and, you know, you'll find them there because there's, there's four of them and they're all kind of like huddled together in a little group. Um, and the one that is real is obvious because he has a battle quote and the rest of them don't. So, um, you know, just a couple of minor things like that that's interesting to uh, to talk about. Michaelis, uh moves in FE1. Uh, it's it's kind of like Camus. The way they handled Camus and Michaelis in FE11 are swapped for FE1. Um, and I, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of interesting. I don't plan on ever playing it again, just like I don't plan on ever playing Gaiden again. I'm certainly not going to play it for this podcast. Obviously, we've already, we've already, you know, we started with four, so I wouldn't have to anyway. But regardless, uh, I just, you know, I, I feel accomplished. I got through one more uh, step of the series, and I'm, I'm well on my way to truly being uh, the number one Fire Emblem gamer 
so yeah, look for, cheer me on, cheer me on to be the be the number one Fire Emblem gamer, uh, and I will uh, I'll be sure to mention you all in my acceptance speech uh, when they eventually do the Fire Emblem Gamer Awards. Uh, when I get my trophy, I will definitely give a shout out to you guys. But in the meantime, uh, I hope you all have a nice rest of your day. Uh, I I did the question this time, right? Yeah, I said favorite Fog of War map. So make sure you let me know what your favorite Fog of War map is in Fire Emblem uh, by tweeting at Kirby or emailing turnwheelpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, so have a nice rest of your day, everybody. And I will talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.